0: There are over 31,000 verses in the Bible, and if I were to ask you which of those 31,000 verses is the most popular, my guess is that most of you would answer John 3:16, Most popular verse in the Bible, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life life. It's the most popular verse in the entire Bible. Over the years that I've been in ministry, I've had more than a few conversations with people who believe that verse. They believe that verse, but at the same time, they weren't quite so sure that God really loved them. Maybe you're one of those today. You believe that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to die on the cross, but you're not quite sure if he really Loves you. Sometimes we doubt God's love because of our own insecurities. You know, we just don't think we're much, and so why would God love me? Other times we doubt His love because we've sinned and we realize that that sin separates us from God. And then sometimes we doubt God's love because we just can't wrap our minds around this notion that in this huge universe of ours, where planet Earth is just like a speck of dust in a tiny solar system in one of billions of galaxies, why would God care about little old me? And so some of us have trouble wrapping our minds around this idea that the creator of the universe would love me. Maybe that's a question you have today. My guess is that most of us, if not all of us, have asked that question at some point in our lives. How could God... Love me. Once you have your Bibles out, we're going to look at three passages today. And let me kind of say that a little differently. I'm going to have you turn to three different passages during this message. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture today, but I'm going to have you turn to at least three of these. And so we're going to start in just a few moments in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 17 Ephesians chapter 3 verse 17 that's about 3 quarters of the way through your New Testament. We're going to look at two passages today in the New Testament and one passage in the Old. Ephesians 3:17 we'll look at that in just a few moments. Uh, my oldest daughter Kayla Uh, finally graduated from high school a little over a week ago. Uh, Because of COVID, her graduation ceremony was delayed about a month and a half. And so it was so awesome for my family and me to be able to celebrate her finally being able to don her cap and gown and receive her diploma. And here in recent months, as I've been thinking of Kayla, uh, passing this milestone, graduating from high school, and within the next several months, moving away to college, I've really tried to think of some scriptures that I wanted to pass on to her as she enters this new phase of her life. And I want to share one of those passages with you right now. It's from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. This is one of those passages that I wanted to share with Kayla. And I am praying for Kayla as well. Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm going to start partway through verse 17. This is what it says. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is one of my prayers for Kayla. I want her to be firmly rooted in God's love. Amen? I want her to somehow grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. But I don't want her to simply grasp God's love. I want her to experience it. I want her to to know his love personally. And this is one of my prayers for you too. I want you to be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. But I don't want you to simply grasp his love. I want you to know it personally. I want you to experience it. I want you to own that love. If you want to do some uh, fun and um, uplifting Bible study on your own, I encourage you to do a quick Google search and simply uh, put into the Google search engine uh, Bible verses about God's love. And I'm telling you, you'll get all sorts of verses, Old and New Testaments, that pop up. There are so many verses in both the Old and New Testaments that talk about God's love. Let me just share a few of them with you right now. In Psalm 136, verse 26, it says, Give thanks to God. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. Can I get an amen to that? Psalm 86, verse 15. But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Jeremiah 31, 3. The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. Isaiah 54.10, God says, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So taken together, these verses describe God's love as great, as abounding, as unfailing. And his love isn't just great and abounding and unfailing for a little while. His love is everlasting. As it says, his love endures forever. God's love is truly amazing. Amen? Now, there's another truth about God's love revealed in the pages of Scripture that I don't want you to miss. God's love is also unconditional. His love is unconditional. Or to put it a different way, there's no rational explanation for God's love. It doesn't make sense. God's love does not make sense. It's, as some have said, a crazy kind of love. In order to understand today's question, how could God love me? I think that we need to look together at a second passage, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. So this will be the one Old Testament passage I ask you to turn to during this message. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in your Bible. It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7, and we'll start in just a moment in verse 7. Deuteronomy is oftentimes called the second law. Uh, During the Israelites' 40-year journey through the wilderness, they were uh, released from slavery in Egypt. God set them free under the leadership of Moses. And for 40 years, they went through the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land land of Palestine. For 40 years, they went through that desert. And during that time, God gave them uh, his law for the people of Israel. And that law was recorded by Moses in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. But by the time we get to Deuteronomy, it's been 40 years since they left Egypt. And because the people had been so rebellious, God punished the people of Israel. Any adult that left uh, Egypt was not allowed to enter the Promised Land. There were only two exceptions. Caleb and Joshua were the only two adults who left Egypt and 40 years later were able to enter the promised land. So the second law is what we call Deuteronomy, because in Deuteronomy, Moses, before he dies, repeats what he had told this generation's parents and grandparents on that 40-year journey to the promised land. As he's teaching them Deuteronomy, these are all kids and teenagers and younger adults under the age of 40 that he's sharing the law with. And so he repeats the Ten Commandments and some of the most important things that he had taught in Exodus, Leviticus, and uh, and the book of numbers so I want you to notice one of the most important things he teaches is in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 7 through 9 here is what Moses teaches the people of Israel in the younger generations before they enter the promised land he answers this question as to why God had chosen them to be his people Starting in verse 7, it says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations to those who love him and keep his commands. It's a great passage. And so why did God choose the nation of Israel To be his chosen people? Was it because the nation of Israel was a nice, large, massive nation, an intimidating-sized nation? Not at all. When God first chose Israel, it was a nation of two people. Just Abraham and his wife Sarah. It was a piddly little nation. God didn't choose them uh, and love them because of their size. Well, maybe it was because the nation of Israel had lots of natural resources. Maybe they had uh, uh, gold mines and and diamond mines. Maybe they had lots of land. Not at all. When God pulled them out of Egypt, uh, they didn't own any land. And they didn't really have any natural resources. Oh, well, maybe it was because the nation of Israel had lots of talent and a whole lot of personal charm, right? Lots of personal charm. Their personalities were wonderful. Well, that wasn't it either. They weren't a particularly talented people. Uh, They didn't create new technologies. And the people were more obnoxious than they were charming. And so none of those reasons explain why God loved them. So why did God choose the nation of Israel to be his chosen people? Well, according to Deuteronomy 7-8, there were two reasons. Number one, he chose them because he loved them. And number two, he chose them because he had promised their forefathers that he would bless them. So this morning, our focus is going to be on the first of those two reasons. God chose the nation of Israel simply because he loved them. It's a curious thing. It's an unexplainable thing, but... It's a reality. God loved Israel unconditionally. In spite of their puny size, he loved them. In spite of their stubbornness and their obnoxious complaining and their grumbling, he loved them. In spite of their poverty, he loved them. God loved them in spite of the fact that the people of Israel most of the time were very unlovable. He loved them anyway. His love was unconditional. As we read in that verse earlier, his love was an everlasting love. To put it simply, God loved the Israels. I didn't say that very well. God loved the Israelites in spite of themselves. It's true. God loved the Israelites in spite of themselves. And with that in mind, we can tackle today's question, how could God love me? Well, to be honest with you, It's completely illogical for God to love me. And to be honest with you, it's completely illogical. It makes no sense for God to love you either. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense because like Israel, uh, you and I aren't big and famous, are we? You and I aren't super popular. I know about you, but I know I don't have millions of followers on social media. I know about you, but I'm not considered a very influential person in society. We are not big and famous people. By most people's viewpoints, we're not uh, people of great influence in the United States of America. We don't have a lot of natural resources. Most of us don't have much money. Many of us are living paycheck to paycheck. And so God doesn't love us because we're famous. God doesn't love us because we're important. God doesn't love us because everybody thinks we're all that in a pocket of change. God doesn't love us because we've got all these natural resources. And God doesn't love us because of our personal charm. Nope. The real realistic uh, perspective on this is that, you know what? Just like Israel, sometimes we have crummy attitudes. Sometimes we're stubborn. Uh, Sometimes uh, we are not the, the nicest people to get along with and the easiest people to live with. God knows all of those faults that you and I have, yet he loves us anyway. Why is that? Well, God loves you, not because of who you are or because of what you've done. God loves you because of who he is. Did you catch that? God doesn't love you because of who you are or because of what you've done. God loves you because of who he is. When we doubt God's love for us, it's inevitably because we're taking our eyes off of him and placing our eyes on ourselves. We're focusing on our own insecurities and our own shortcomings and our own sins and our own insignificance. But that's the wrong place to focus. God's love for me has never been primarily about me. God's love for me has always been primarily about Him. It's about Him and His love, not about me and my deserving to be loved. 1 John 4.8 says point blank that God is love. And in case we missed it, down in verse 16, it's said again, God is love. Because God is love, He's going to love me no matter how obnoxious I am. Because God is love, He is going to love you, no matter how unlovable you are. No matter how undeserving I am, no matter how undeserving you are, God is going to love us anyways, because God is love. He is love. So we ask that question, how could God love me? How could God love you? Because God is love. And loving, undeserving sinners like you and me, is what God specializes in. Amen? He specializes in loving, undeserving people like you and me. Now I want you to turn to one last passage. John chapter 11. John is back in the New Testament. It's the fourth book in our New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter 11. I want to share with you a few verses from this well-known passage. Uh, John 11 records for us uh, one of jesus's most famous miracles the miracle where he raises lazarus from the dead after lazarus had been dead and in the tomb for four days it's a pretty incredible miracle John 11 In the first couple verses of John chapter 11 We're given the backstory. Uh, Lazarus uh, was sick And Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha And it's made clear in those first couple verses That Jesus knew uh, this household of three Lazarus and Mary and Martha And so in verse 3 it says this Follow along with me in your Bibles It says So the sisters sent word to Jesus Lord The one you love is sick. And so Jesus is not where they are. They're in the town of Bethany. He's evidently a number of miles away. But they send a messenger to Jesus with this message. "Uh, Jesus, uh, the one you love is sick. Now I find that interesting because uh, Jesus knew this household. He had evidently visited them at least a few times before. Had spent a lot of time with Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus, it seems clear, was a friend of Jesus. And so it's interesting that they don't say, uh, Lord, uh, Lazarus is sick. And they don't say, Lord, your friend is sick. Notice how they say it to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. I I find that pretty interesting, Lord, uh, there. Lord, the the one you love is sick. And then I want you to skip down to verse 36. And I want you to notice what happens uh, in verse 36. Uh, Later in the passage... As we got past verse 3, Jesus makes his way to Bethany. He learns that by the time he gets to Bethany, that Lazarus had died of that sickness. He'd already been buried in a tomb, had been in that tomb for four days. And Mary and Martha each come to Jesus and say, Jesus, if you'd been here sooner, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus is led out to the tomb outside of where they had rolled that rock in front of the, the cave, that tomb where Lazarus had been buried. And in verse 35, we find the shortest verse in the whole Bible, two words, Jesus wept. As he came out and saw all the mourners that were crying out in front of the tomb for Lazarus, Jesus was overcome with emotion. He, he clearly cared about Lazarus. It's clear that he loved Lazarus. And, and so he started to weep as everyone around him was grieving for Lazarus. Even though Jesus knew what he was about to do, he knew he was about to raise him from the dead, Jesus wept anyway. He was overcome with emotion. And I want you to see what is said in verse 36. As Jesus weeps, The Jews that were there that day and saw Jesus weeping said this, See how he loved him. See how he loved him. And so the Jews saw the tears rolling down Jesus' cheeks, and they heard the wails coming from his mouth, and they could clearly see that Jesus had loved Nazareth. And I want to point out to you today that the Jews that saw Jesus weep and spoke those words, see how he loved him. Well, I want to suggest to you that they were half right. They were half right because it was true that Jesus had loved Lazarus. He was his friend. He had a deep affection, and and there was a special place in Jesus' heart for Lazarus. But they were only half right because the truth was Jesus hadn't just loved Lazarus when he was alive. The reality was in that very moment that Jesus was weeping, he loved Lazarus as he was dead. You still with me on that? So he had loved Lazarus when he was alive, and he still loves Lazarus. As Lazarus lies dead inside that tomb just a few feet away. And so, as I was thinking of that this last week, you know, this, this truth came to my mind from this passage that Jesus' love transcends death. Amen? Jesus' love transcends death. Did you catch what's said there in that passage? See how he loved him. And it's as if Jesus is saying, No, 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 I didn't just love him. Then, I love him now, and in a few moments, when I raise him back to life, I'm going to still love him then as well. Past, present, future, nothing could change the love of Jesus Christ. Death could not change the fact that Jesus loved his friend. His love transcends life and death. And so Jesus, in the next few verses, speaks the word, the stone is rolled away, and Lazarus, dressed like a mummy, comes out of that tomb alive, and you better believe that for the rest of that man's life here on earth and throughout eternity, Jesus still loves Lazarus. That's great news for you and me, because according to God's word, our sins have made us dead to God. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, it says you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. In Colossians two thirteen, it says when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins. There's, so there's no doubt about it. Our rebellious sins have made us spiritually dead to God. But just like with Lazarus, Jesus is ready and willing to raise us back to life. Amen? But why would he do that? Why would he want to raise us back to life? Well, because in spite of ourselves, God loves us. In spite of ourselves, Jesus loves us. I love Romans 5.8. It says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, when we were dead in our sin, Jesus died for us anyway. He didn't say, well, you're dead in your sin already, so no use me dying on the cross. He didn't care that we were dead in our sins. He died for us anyways because he knew just as he would conquer death three days later physically, he could conquer our spiritual death as he died on the cross and gave us the opportunity to reach out and receive him as Lord and Savior. Romans 5.8 is a glorious verse. While we were still being selfish jerks, Jesus loved us and died for us anyway. While we were still breaking God's laws and turning our backs on him and doing whatever we felt like doing, Jesus died for us anyway. And loved us anyway. While we were still rebellious and stubborn and complaining and arguing, Jesus loved us and died for us anyway. While we were completely undeserving and unappreciative and unlovable, Jesus loved us and died for us anyway. No wonder the Apostle John writes in 1 John 3, 1, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. No wonder the Apostle Paul writes in Romans eight thirty five and 37, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he goes on to say in Romans eight thirty-eight and 39, For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Life cannot separate us from God. Death cannot separate us from the love of God. Nothing in this universe can separate us from the almighty, powerful, undeserving love of God. Some of the hymns that Christians sing in church date back hundreds of years. And some of those old hymns are some of the best songs that we ever sing. And one of the oldest hymns that is ever sung in the church today is called simply The Love of God. And The Love of God, one of the things I love about that hymn, is the final verse of that hymn dates back a thousand years. It was originally written in, I forget if it's Latin or Arabic, but it was written around a thousand years ago. And just about a hundred years ago, that verse was adapted into this melody and this hymn that is sung today known as the love of God. But I want to share with you that final verse that dates back a thousand years because I think it's one of the most poetic descriptions of God's love that's ever been written. Here's how that verse goes. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. And then the chorus that was added about a hundred years ago. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure. How powerful, measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. God's love is truly rich and pure and measureless and strong. God's love truly does endure forever. And for all eternity, believers and followers of Jesus Christ will join the angels in heaven and together we will sing of God's great, amazing love. Forever and ever we'll be celebrating the unimaginable, unexplainable, undeserved love of God for unlovable people who have turned their backs on Him. Oh, what a glorious thing it is to know that God's love is so much greater than my unloveliness. One of the greatest theologians of the 20th century was a theologian by the name of Karl Barth. If you look at his picture on the screen there, I look at him, he reminds me of Clarence, the angel from It's a Wonderful Life, kind of looks like Clarence, kind of looks like Oval Redenbacher, the pop- popcorn guy, but you know, he wasn't that great to look at, but Karl Barth was a brilliant theologian. In his later years, he was asked to be a guest lecturer at the University of Chicago Divinity School. And at the end of his closing lecture, the president of the seminary announced that because Dr. Barth was not feeling well and was very tired, he wouldn't do his customary thing at the end of his lectures, which would be to receive questions from the audience. He was simply not in good health and too tired to do that. So the president of the college said, instead, I will ask him one question on behalf of all of us here. He said, here's the one question. He said, Dr. Barth, of all of the theological insights you have ever had, which do you consider to be the greatest of them all? Karl Barth was a man that had literally written tens of thousands of pages on theology, Some of the most complicated and and deep theology that had been written on American soil. And so he had had this vast knowledge about the word of God and the theological insights about God. And so they boiled it down to that one question. What is the greatest theological insight you have ever gleaned from your thousands of hours of study and writing? And Karl Barth lowered his head, closed his eyes, and he thought for a moment. And the students in the audience, they got out their paper and their pencils, and they were ready to write down every word that he spoke. And Karl Barth, those that were there, said as his eyes were closed, he was thinking for a moment, and then he had a small smile come to his face. And then he opened his eyes and said, The greatest theological insight I have ever learned is this. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible. The Bible tells me so. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I cannot explain, I cannot fully understand, I cannot fully grasp the love of God, but I want to. I want to. I want to know how wide and long. And high and deep is the love of God. But what I have learned over these years is that you love me. What I have learned over these years, even though I can't explain it, even with my failures, even with my shortcomings, even though there's so much that I do, oh God, that is unlovely and unlovable, you love me anyway. And I know that holds true for everyone listening to this message today. They may feel unloved, but the truth is the God who created the heaven and the earth loves them. They may feel like that they don't deserve your love because of their their many sins that they've committed, but Lord, you love them anyway. And you came and sent your Son and died for them. Lord Jesus, you died on that cross, demonstrating, giving conclusive proof once and for all that you love us, whether we deserve it or not. Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity you give us to study your word, to get to know you better. And I pray this for me. I pray this for my daughter Kayla as she heads off to college. And I pray this for my entire family and for everyone watching. Oh God, help us to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses all knowledge. Lord Jesus, I want everyone listening to this broadcast to experience your love. And if there's anyone who has never reached out and received Christ as Savior, I pray that they would do that right now, admitting that they are a sinner, believing that you died on the cross for their sins, and choosing to follow you, Lord Jesus, for the rest of their life. And Lord, I pray for anyone that makes that decision, that they would boldly confess that to others, share that with others, And do what you commanded us to do, Lord, to be baptized, letting the world know, I am following Jesus Christ from this point forward. Lord, anyone who is discouraged or depressed today, I pray for them as well, that you would lift them up in Jesus' name. Wrap your loving arms around them. And don't let the voices of the world or the voices of the enemy, Satan, convince them otherwise. The truth is you love them so much that you died for them. Lord, help us to take hold of your love today. In Jesus' name, amen.